Welcome to the first episode of Dead Cat. I'm Eric Newcomer, uh, the writer and author of uh, Newcomer, the newsletter. I'm here with Tom Dotan and Katie Benner, who will introduce themselves in a second. We've got a very special guest, uh, Parker Conrad. Katie, Tom, and I have been friends for years and have had this long-running sort of message thread, signal thread, where we've chatted about the media and tech and sort of gossiped about sort of, you know, the meta story of what's happening in tech, sort of reading uh, the stories in another light. And so we sort of wanted to try out a podcast where we, you know, uh, talked about uh, tech and the coverage of tech um, from a totally different lens in this in this world, you know, where, you know, uh, technology companies are more ascendant than ever before. Anyway, so that, I mean, that's that's the very quick introduction. I think we should just uh, get into it. Uh, Tom, do you want to say hello? Sure. Hey, I thought you gave a very sanitized version of what okay, that how, well, thread how was. Okay, how would you do it? I thought it was where we were giving our marching orders to the mainstream media in which they would discuss exactly what we wanted them to and depict these tech companies in the specifically negative and detrimental light that we all intend these companies to be viewed. So um, I actually thought there was a lot more power imbued into that chat room, but I guess it was just a place for us to shoot the shit. I, I, I misunderstood the point of this thread. Um, my name is Tom, as Eric said. I am a reporter at Insider. I'm supposed to call it that now, not Business Insider where I cover the gig economy, um, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, GoPuff uh, frequently. So that's, that's, my, that's my beat there. Uh, but yeah, Newcomer and uh, Katie and I used to work together at The Information way back in the day. And I think actually all of us at some point covered Uber, right? Because oh, Katie, yeah, you were an yeah, Uber right, reporter Katie? briefly, weren't oh, you? Oh yeah, when Eric, you, Mike Isaac, me, and another Uber reporter were all at my house one night in San Francisco, and Reuters broke an Uber story, and none of us were able to match it. <laughs> we were definitely all covering Uber at the time. Yeah, so you can see a very insidery group. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's my background here. And I, I used to write about media, so I'm the, I'm the media guy on this show. Yeah, so I'm covering the Justice Department for the New York Times, so I'm really just kind of a special guest here, but it's really fun to think about tech again because I will say as a beat it is more fun in many ways than covering the Justice Department. Cool uh, and yeah I'll introduce Parker a little bit I mean Parker Conrad you know uh, we got to know him or I've known him for a long time as the CEO of Zenefits covered sort of the rise of that company I wrote a Business Week feature on it when it was new and exciting and then you know, uh, Parker got pushed out. It was a huge headline story, and I wrote about that. And I'm sure we'll be talking about the Zenefit story, which has given Parker a super interesting perspective on the media. I mean, I also love that Parker is someone who, you know, did his college newspaper. So he sort of got the media there and then, you know, has these very mixed views about uh, what's great about Silicon Valley and not that sort of... Uh, I don't know, both both are somewhat in line with uh, the rah-rah story and sort of super critical of it. So I, I, I am very excited to hear uh, what what Parker has to say. Parker, I mean, what inspired you to walk into this uh, death trap of uh, three reporters uh, on our first podcast that we have no idea what we're doing? Um, gosh, I don't know. I guess... Um, uh, uh, you know, you're making me nervous here, Eric. <laughs> what, uh, did I make a mistake here? What, uh, is it too no. late? Um, 
Um, I, I mean, I think that, um, <clears throat> I guess I think that there are, um, you know, I think I, we, you and I have spoken before about sort of my view of sort of the media VC complex in, in Silicon Valley and, um, kind of how that impacts the narrative and coverage and sort of the things that, um, the things, some of the things that I sort of dislike about that. Um, um, and so I think there are relatively few people, um, that are willing to give an, an, an alternate perspective, um, that I think is important. And so, um, that's some of it. And then obviously like, um, like a, like a lot of people who sort of, uh, love and hate and need the media, um, you know, I've got a company to pitch and, and, uh, (laughs) um, and so there's, there's always that, that angle. So, okay. Give us. Give us the, what is the tech VC symbiosis? Obviously, we all have our own ideas, but, you know, how how would you articulate it? I think that reporters that are covering tech are looking for, um, uh, like, repeated players or voices of authority that they can speak to about the industry. Um, And um, frequently, they don't know startup founders. Startup founders may be it's hard to identify which ones, which companies are important and who you should be speaking with. And it's very easy to sort of say, oh, well, you know, I'll talk to Andreessen Horowitz or, you know, some brand name VC firm. And so those end up being for reasons that don't, I think, make a lot of sense, the sort of voices of authority about the industry. Um, And it's sort of strange in a way, if you looked at more traditional businesses, you know, if you're writing about the oil and gas industry, would you talk to the banks that are sort of lending them money for capital purchases? And like, those are the people that you would sort of like, would be the authorities on the, the oil and gas. Like, no, that wouldn't, that would, that would be weird. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of unusual. Like if you thought of VCs as, you know, almost more like, like sort of banks, you know, that were lending money to businesses, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sort of immediately think like those are, those are the people that we're going to put at the center of the ecosystem. Um, but, but that is the way often media about tech works and, and, and investors need that because in practice, when you look at a lot of these early stage deals, I think one thing that sometimes people don't from the outside don't understand is it's often just like incredibly obvious to everyone on the ground, like which, that there is a company here that, you know, it's not guaranteed, but this company has a very decent chance very early on of having an enormously successful outcome. And it's obvious to a lot of people there. Um, And so there are tons of investors that would, you know, love to put money into that company. And in practice, the founder, you know, just the limits of their time, you know, these rounds come together in, you know, 10 days they can maybe meet with five or six firms. Um, and so who do they end up meeting with? Well, they end up meeting with the person that they saw, you know, on the front page of the business section in the New York Times or, you know, in the Wall Street Journal or that was, you know, maybe covered recently by Eric's blog um, uh, because that's sort of who they've heard of. Um, and and so from a VC's perspective, that media attention is oxygen. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, the closest 
analogy I can think of is it's like um, it's like celebrities. Um, you know, how, like that's what what they need um, because it's the it's the only thing that's truly differentiating for them. Um, and it's really how I mean you've seen that with some firms like Andreessen Horowitz that really have built their brand purely on the back of that media exposure um, or almost entirely on the back of that media exposure um, to such an extent that I think the right way to think about that firm is it's not really a VC firm. It's a, it's a PR agency that has a very specific monetization strategy of investing in startup, startup companies. Um, and like in that vein, it's not surprising that they've now decided to like create their own content arm and all that kind of stuff. Cause like they, they always were, sort of a media company first and foremost. Yeah, putting Andreessen aside, because I think they are such a specific example, and you're, you, know, you have a history with Andreessen, which might be interesting to talk about later, but in this formula, the media, the reporters, are kind of unquestioning in their willingness to feature venture capitalists. You know, why is it, do you think, that reporters aren't scrutinizing the venture capital firms in the way that they might be scrutinizing the startups themselves? You know, I don't, I don't know. I guess I, I would sort of ask, maybe ask you guys that. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it seems to me that um, reporters are looking for authority figures. You know, they're looking for, you know, they're looking for an authority figure. And then like, sort of the... Looking for daddies. Parental yeah. figures. I agree with It's an analogy yeah. that doesn't, that is not the reality of how these companies are run. But from the outside, you look at it and you're like, oh, well, you have, you know, these people are board members, you know, like they, the, right. the CEO is like, you know, sort of that's their boss, you know, that's not, and that's, that's not the reality of the situation, but I think it's, it's sort of, you know, like in other beats, you know, if you're, if you're talking about something that happened at the justice department, you ultimately want to speak with like Merrick Garland or like, you know, like his, his spokesperson, right. You know, and then so like. You're looking for, like, who's the person at the top? And I think that reporters have uh, sort of concluded, perhaps inaccurately, that that those people are the investors. And it perturbs and distorts I, yeah. a lot of the things about the ecosystem that there's that perception. It's why you see all these people, like, marching out of business school and they all want to become venture capitalists, you know, because, like, you know, that's sort of where – the perception of kind of, you know, where, where the, where the power is and, you know, where the sort of the power behind the throne or whatever, whatever you would call it. Um, so can I ask you, I mean, please say no if you don't want to, but would it not be instructive then to look at Zenefits through this lens? And I, I don't think we introduced Zenefits. I don't think we said what it was, but it was the company that you started that was enormously successful, specifically in Silicon Valley terms, meaning the valuation grew and grew and grew, meaning investors were... It's an HR, like, like, like an HR portal yeah, so, for companies. Yeah, so investors yeah. were basically trying to buy more stock, essentially, in your company at ever higher prices. And your company helped you know, other corporations onboard employees and take care of HR functions through, you know, through easy-to-use software. It was a great idea. And from the media's point of view, we saw this stratospheric rise of your company. And, and that attention was sort of built by the valuations, which are granted by the VCs, which then make them a huge part of the story because the main data point, and maybe this is flawed, but the main data point, especially at the time reporters used to decide which company mattered was, was the valuation. Right? Especially at that period and rocket fueled by Andreessen, which was probably at its like 
at then you know philosophical voice of the Silicon Valley mouthpiece peak. Right? So what did that look like from your point of view as you were watching the attention turned to your company in large part because of this both VC fueled valuation and VC fueled, you know, conversation with the press. So what did that look like inside to you? Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, there are some things that I can talk about about Zenefits and there are some things that I just can't. Um, and so <clears throat> I probably can't go as deep in this conversation as I'd like to at some point in time. Um, I... Um, it, it's definitely true. I mean, you, you say that sort of like the press was fueled by the valuation, which was in turn fueled by like sometimes the press was fueled directly by the VCs themselves. Like I remember um, at one point, um, you know, Kim Milosevic from Andreessen Horowitz coming to me and saying, hey, um, we have, um, you know, a reporter from The New York Times who wants to profile a Silicon Valley company and asked us, like, which company should he do? Um, and we told him the company that, you know, that he should do was Zenefits. And the clear implication is like, you know, we sort of instructed <clears throat> like the media, you know, which company to cover. And now they're going to cover your, I mean, it was very like, at least in the way that they, now I don't know what it was like from the reporter's perspective, but in terms of how they described it to me, it was like, <clears throat> we are telling them to cover your company and that. You know, became a. I think this is this Farhad. became a, a, a story that Farhad Farhad wrote for the New York Times, um, and so there were definite, uh, at least from my perspective, it was like, wow, no, these these guys are, you know, they they exercise a fair amount of direct control um, over sort of the media narrative, and you know, and and Eric, you and I have talked about, um, you know, just the dinners that. Um, you know, Margaret would have for reporters, you know, at her house. That's where I met you. <laughs> that's right. I remember, you know, and, uh, you know, it was incredible to see, you know, everyone just the extent to which like invites to those dinners were important. You know, like there, there's an ecosystem there between VCs and, and the, the tech media that I think puts the VC firms at the center of these stories in, um, in, in, in ways that are, um, sort of sometimes miss sort of other, other dynamics. Oh, those dinners are extremely canny the way that they're handled, because first of all, all reporters want to be invited to them because it shows that, I mean, if you're at a big publication, you kind of by default get invited to it. Um, and you know, at the information, it was always an issue at first because for certain places we didn't register, but reporters are always kind of, you know, scurrying around there like rats trying to like make connections with uh, entrepreneurs like you or um, it, it, or VCs it always thinking felt much that more like this is it, you know I, like much more yeah yeah more than VCs. Was, was well, I, I think I think I mean as a reporter still deep in this beat who's really set up a publication around the VCs I think for some of the reasons we're talking about I do think there's a there's a reality that like the VCs are just more scalable sources <laughs> you know they they know the facts. Uh, that I want, like, at great scale, whereas a founder maybe knows a lot about their company. Nobody wants to leak stuff about their own company. Well, so one question is, like, how does this play out in terms of the type of, the, the, the way that sort of, you know, coverage, you know, you know happens um, for tech? And, and one way that it happens is that often there's a set of things that a lot of VCs will agree on that ends up getting sort of repeated um, w without a lot of questioning, 
Um, Do you have an example? Yeah, one example would be that um, uh, we pay too much for startups to invest in them, and we would prefer to pay less for startups to invest in them. <laughs> yeah. But also to your point, that sentiment belies the fact that one of the reasons VCs are paying so much isn't just because the prices are too high, it's because they're taking in too much capital in a world where other institutional investors are trying to get a return. Sure, but you know, you look at, for, for a long time, you know, Bill Gurley was out there talking about how all these startups were overvalued. And everyone, like the media, loved him for it. You know, it was, it was right. here was an insider sort of like speaking truth to, you know, his own. And everyone viewed it as heroic. And no one was sort of saying like, wait, isn't this maybe a little bit self-serving? You, you know, like why... Um, well, Gurley's who I, you know, I like and I've profiled is expert at saying one thing and doing another, you know, are writing blog posts that sort of implicitly indict Uber or WeWork, well, you know, to sort of hedge against, you know, his firm's own actual behavior in a certain And, and of course, I think like, and I look, I've never met Bill Gurley, but it, it strikes me that Bill Gurley was a big fan of valuations being lower for early stage startups and he, and has always been a big fan of the idea that public markets investors are paying too little for these companies when they IPO, um, <clears throat> which, you know, maybe those two things conflict with each other. Maybe they don't. Are you able to talk about how this sort of like interplay between valuations and venture capitalists in the media, um, you know, from your point of view, whatever it is you can say, how, how that looked to you as then if it's hit a road bump? Um, <laughs> Road and is, is some terrible. of, yes, I, I will say that the thing that I remember most about Zenefits is Rolf Winkler's story about people having sex in the stairwells or something. Well, I just mean, ask like, it about was, that. Yeah. Parker, it was it was condoms in right. the stairwell. But, but so yeah, but, you know, so but let's just ask about that. that. Let's talk about, I mean, we can talk about that specific thing. Um, which, which you know, look, um, we got an email from our landlord that said, "Hey." we found, you know, a condom in the stairwell of this building, and that's completely unacceptable. And the office manager of our company sent an email out to, you know, everyone at the company saying this is completely unacceptable. Um, and look, there were 30, 35 other companies in that building. It's not even clear that it was someone at Zenefits. But that story got, you know, we were the ones that sent out that email, and that's the email that they got a hold of, and that story got written and rewritten and rewritten um, <clears throat> in a way that... And, okay. Yeah, my, my sense of the Zenefits thing was it was, I mean, it was really a feeding frenzy as far as reporters were concerned. I mean, there were reporters, I think actually every, like Katie, Eric, and I all at some point did some sort of Zenefits mm -hmm. insidery mm -hmm. piece, maybe not like a feature uh, at the same level as, you know, Eric maybe did or um, Will Alden, no longer a reporter, but he kind of, you know, wrote probably the, the most intensive pieces on it. I mean, what did it seem like to you from that perspective as this many stories are coming out and reporters are essentially making their careers um, out of, you know, this sort of story? I mean, obviously there was, there was malfeasance that we were uh, discussing here and certainly when it came to, you know, flouting insurance regulations in different states you know you could argue there were stakes beyond just kind of you know condoms in the stairwell but 
uh, did it, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've always wondered from the entrepreneur perspective as reporters are essentially, you know, we're getting pay raises out of, out of writing stories like this ultimately. I mean, what is it, what is it from the other side? Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. Were you, were you, were you getting pay raises, Eric? Was that a... None, none of us have gotten pay raises in a long time. <laughs> well, not, not, it's not like they're like, it, it, it's more just like, oh, if you write good stories, you're going to do better in your career. You know what I mean? It's, uh, right, Tom? Or are you, yeah. You, yeah, no. I mean, look, I've like gone on vacations before and I've been like, man, you know what afforded this vacation? Like Snapchat really fucked up a couple <laughs> years ago. And it's I mean, look, it's true. It's the nature of the job. And obviously we, we, we aspire to greater reasons as to, to why we write these stories and tell more important things than just that. But, um, you know, there is another side to it. There are people that we're writing about that I've always wondered. Look, one thing I will say is that when stuff like this happens, there are people that have institutional apparatus behind them, you know, that have, you know, PR firms, PR agencies, established media relationships. Um, Lanny Davis. People like, like um, <laughs> wonderful human beings like Lanny Davis. Um, who rep uh, David yeah, Sachs. Uh, and who, who David hired, you know, immediately when, when this went down and, and who – from what I've heard from from other reporters that, you know, David Sachs and Lanny Davis were kind of on the phone every day sort of pitching stories about me for six months. Um, what kinds of stories <clears throat> are they pitching? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I heard about a lot of that sort of secondhand. But, um, you know, there are people like me who are just kind of like holed up at home and kind of ignoring all of it. Um, and, you know, largely, you know, not talking to to anyone. But isn't, isn't, isn't that an argument for the VCs actually being powerful that like that when the, the fight with the company happens, Andreessen Horowitz is super sort of the, the power broker in a way that suddenly the founder isn't, or, you know what I mean? I mean, a conflict in your story to me, which I mostly agree with is just, you know, Andreessen brings in David Sachs who causes some of your problems. Like there are things where the VC firm clearly had a big role in the company and, and, you know, you want to point to them for some blame, but you're also like, oh, they're not really big players. You know, I think one one thing is sort of understanding, like, the nature of, like, the VC VC's sort of uh, power over companies. And um, one thing that I've come to understand is it's not about board control. Um, you know, I, um, <clears throat> you know, I had control of the board. At Santa Fitz, and I think it's really, um, you know, what happens is is um, the the authority that that VCs have over companies is a media authority. It's a it's a it's a public. You know, it's saying it's sort of saying like, look, if you you will do what we want you to do, or we will publicly go to war with the company. You know, and we will you know, say all these bad things about you in the press and disavow the investment and all that kind of stuff, which is a, a surprisingly common tactic that firms employ um, far more frequently in, in terms of that having, you know, sort of telling founders that than actually sort of pulling the trigger and doing it. Um, and, um, you know, that is, I think, the nature of the authority that investors often have over these companies is like far more this like moral authority with the public. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's something that, that I, that I disagree with. 
So I just want to make sure that we have all the people we've just mentioned um, correct, uh, correctly identified because there are people who might not know what happened at Zenefits, but David Sachs, he came in and he replaced you as CEO, is that correct? Yeah. And he was brought in by venture capitalists, by Andreessen Horowitz. Da I mean, David joined um, you know, a year and a half, two years before I left, and he was CEO of the company for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And he, but was that your hire, or did VCs ask him to join? <coughs> um, uh, he, was def he was definitely introduced to me by the VC firm. I mean, I remember there was this moment, uh, right around actually the time that that, that that piece ran in the New York Times, where... Um, you know, we were like Zenefits was growing so quickly. I mean, we, we were, we went, you know, in that year <clears throat> when David joined, we went from, you know, 20 employees to 450. Um, <laughs> and I remember talking to, um, like Lars Dalgard, who was our board member for Andreessen Horowitz in, in sort of August of that year. And I said, look, I think we've got to, you know, pump the brakes a little bit and like slow down because it's just like, it feels like everywhere it's just hard to keep up with. And because, you know, when you're growing really quickly, little things that go wrong quickly spiral out of control and become, like, very hard to address. Um, and Lars looked at me and he said, don't you dare. You know, if you do that, you don't know that when you are ready to grow again, whether you're even able to, um, you know, whether the sort of focus of the market hasn't turned somewhere else. Um, and he said, look, let's, let's hire a COO. And I, you know, there's this great guy that we've been talking with who's David. And that's, and then I met with David and that's how David joined. And he was impressive to you. I mean, he's like a, and he was impressive. I was like, look, I was guy. like, wow, here's I mean, this guy, you know, big name, you know, PayPal, you know, like, I mean, it was a, you know, superficially, um, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, he was an impressive brand. You were connected to the mafia. I mean, this is as good as it <laughs> gets. Right. Little, little did I know there are downsides to being connected to the mafia. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like we have, I mean, the, I, now we've talked about Zenefits a lot. So I want to make the clear, the clear argument against you is just, you know, first that there was the macro, this tool that helped people stay on their sort of licensing tests when they're supposed to send a certain amount of time. Yes, it didn't progress them through it, but it was a tool that sort of was meant to skirt um, you know, uh, the requ legal requirements. And then two, you know, there were in fact, and this is what Wilda Alden was reporting legitimately, that there were, you know, brokers that were unlicensed, you know, maybe they were licensed in one state, but not in the state they were selling in. And that there's an argument, certainly for Andreessen and Sachs, that they were going to have this huge, that they had legitimate legal problems and the company was going to have to move past them. And I mean, it's a classic. I mean, I think literally I found, was it Ben Horowitz or Mark Andreessen who had written a post that when you turn on the CEO, you need to turn on them like 100%. So you have these problems. You say, okay, it's, you know, the responsibility sort of rolls up to the top and like we don't have voting control, so we really need to gun for this guy. And then, I mean, that's, that, that's sort of the strategy. Um, I don't know. Do you disagree with that portrait? Uh, I mean, you know, Look, I, you know, I, I think there's not enough time in this podcast to get into the sort of ins and outs of all the, of all that, of all sure. that stuff. Can I ask you, Parker, about your, um, you know, in starting Rippling, which is a Zenefits um, competitor. Know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I remember when, you know, you were raising that initial round and, and the stories were coming together that like, ah, here comes Parker Conrad again. 
and it was something of a comeback story, something of a I can't believe they let this guy in the building again story. Um, and you know, ultimately, it's doing very well. We used uh, Rippling actually at the information uh, switch from Zenefits to Rippling at some point down the line. So uh, that's one account one. But um, you know, what did it? What was that process like for you as you were starting? a new company coming back as the guy that had been deposed from the previous one and effectively doing the same thing? Um, so first, I mean, I would, I would disagree that it's the same thing. Um, I think it's extremely different um, in, in, in ways that, uh, I mean, I'll try and articulate and then you may say, yeah, yeah, but it's the same thing. Um, I think that the, um, the biggest difference for me is that, um, you know, the, the central insight at my last company that sometimes sometimes people miss is, is that, you know, sometimes people think Zenefits was just online health insurance, and that wasn't actually really what it was. Um, what made the company work is that you had this button to hire someone, and you would click hire, and they would sort of show up automatically in all of your HR systems. You know, they'd get set up in payroll, we'd get their agreement signed, they would show up in medical insurance, dental insurance, 401k. And before um, that company came along, those things were all completely separate systems. Like these were separate places you'd have to set up employees. And there was a lot of administrative work associated with that. Um, and now, of course, that's, that's become sort of like par for the course across a lot of, you know, payroll and HR systems. I think one of the big difference with Rippling is the belief that, uh, you know, employee data is important for almost all business systems within a company, not just the HR ones. And that as a result of that, there's this, I think actually the root of most of the administrative pain of um, you know, most at most companies um, comes back to this fact that, man, all of the different business systems that you use are different places where you need to manage employee information one way or another. You know, like why is it, you know, you got to, it's a pain in the butt. You got to set people up with email access, with Slack access, with access to Dropbox and Salesforce and GitHub. And you need to manage email list memberships and Slack channels and policies that apply to them and all these different systems. And all of these things are fundamentally about employee data. You know, it's about someone gets access to Salesforce because they work in the sales department. <clears throat> they, you know, they need to be subscribed to an email list because they're, a manager on your customer support team. Um, and so if you have an underlying system that understands all of that, um, you can give people that same button um, where they click a button to hire someone. But in this case, people get set up everywhere. You know, they get their computer shipped out to them. They get access to all these different business systems. They get added to all the right email lists and Slack channels and policies and groups and license types and whatever. And yes, they get enrolled in insurance and set up in payroll and all this different stuff. And that was, <clears throat> there was this sort of much bigger opportunity um, as, resu as a result of that. And I think what happened is, um, you know, Zenefits was probably starting to move in that direction towards the tail end of my time there. But as soon as I left, um, all of those projects immediately got killed because they were sort of the ancien regime. Um, and so <clears throat> they all got sort of shut down immediately. Um, and, um, you know, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the new CEO came in and, you know, he started firing people and he fired all the wrong people, you know, and he fired a lot of people because they were, you know, associ in some way associated with me or 
Um, or at least I saw it as like, these are all, you're laying out. And then of course, any founder is going to look at, you know, what someone comes in afterwards and say like, oh, they're doing it all wrong. But I, I sort of felt like, man, this thing that I wanted to exist, this product that I thought I wanted to use, that I thought was the way that businesses should do this stuff, wasn't going to exist. You know, that Zenefits was kind of going off in this different direction. Um, and, you know, other competitors were not going to build it. Um, and at the same time, you know, I, um, you know, was feeling a lot of frustration about what was going on in the media and sort of what was <clears throat> being written about me in, in the press and places like that. And I sort of felt like the only way that I was going to speak, um, you know, to the extended, you know, kind of tech community, to the media, to my friends and family, the only way I was going to be able to do that was to like build this specific company and turn it into like a hundred billion dollar outcome. And then if I could do that, at some point that would force some kind of reassessment of all of this. Um, and how far into and the hundred billion? You know, there were all, there were all kinds of reasons I wasn't able to sort of really talk about it. There were, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, that's not, you know, I wasn't. That's not where that kind of politicking wasn't really where my my talents lied. And um, but this was something I could do. You know, like I I felt like I I had a point of view about what the market needed and sort of how to get there, and that that was the thing I was going to focus on. And that if I did that. <clears throat> um, you know, and so we're, you know, I'm four or five but years how, into it. You know, the the story's not. How right. could you? How could you raise raise VC money again? I mean, sort of. I mean, basically, the YC crowd sticks with you. Sam Altman initialized back you. I mean, what did you did you change anything about how you worked with VCs in this, or what? Or you're just sort of stuck in that trap. I think I'm, I'm extremely grateful. There, there were a bunch of investors that that um, backed me and supported me when it was not a popular thing to do, um, and uh, I will be forever grateful to, um, you know, to YC, to Gary Tan, to um, Mamoon at KP, and all those folks, um, um, and. Um, yeah, and, and other sort of new investors like KOTU and folks like that. I think in general, like most of the investors who really understood what happened did not have any issue with it. And and the investors that went really deep on diligence sort of came out of that being like, we have no concerns. Um, did uh, Ben Horowitz try and scare anybody off? Uh, there were definitely like people, there were definitely, I don't, I don't know about Ben specifically, but <clears throat> certainly, um, uh, certainly there, there were, there were people like, like Sachs or others who called up, you know, people in that process and said, don't invest. Um, and sometimes they did that success. Preemptively, like not as a reference. Preemptively, but as in, like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, they would yeah. go around preemptively. Yeah, no, I mean, <clears throat> um, there was a firm that I had a GP meeting scheduled with on a Monday and, and you know, I think David called him right before. And on Sunday, they called me up and said, oh, like, so-and-so just talked to David. He's poker buddies with him. And, uh, you know, sorry, we've got to cancel the GP meeting. I'd like to just, you know, for change course for just a second, 
And note that you have been starting companies for a really long time. I think the first company you started was in 2006. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it was uh, it was a financial services startup of some sort, um, Sigfig. And so it was many things over the course of <laughs> the time that I was there. So you know, your first company was in 2006, and I I, I note there there's an interesting description of your startup history in a profile of you from last year. Basically, that you start your first company in 2006, and you're pushed out of the company because you have fallen out with the co-founder. Um, and then Zenefits, you leave that company, obviously, after a falling out with both investors and with David Sachs. And so in this, in this latest iteration of the company you're starting, can you talk a little bit about what it is you learn, you know, you know, these, these tough departures, what, did, what, what, has, what have you changed about yourself in response to, um, you know, these startups that have come and gone for you? You know, what is, what, how do you see things differently than you did in 2006 or even when you started Zenefits about yourself? I think, um, yeah, I think it's really hard. I think the only, um, the only thing, I mean, I've obviously, I've had some big successes in my life and I've had a lot of pretty catastrophic failures and a lot of big ups and downs. And, and I think like, the only people in Silicon Valley always sort of want to sort of mythologize failure. Um, and the only thing that I've ever really learned from failure is how much it sucks and how much you never want it to happen again. Um, <clears throat> and beyond that, I'm not sure that there are a lot of meaningful, deep lessons from it, to be totally honest. Cool. All right. This was awesome. Um, thank you for doing our first experiment. I think it's like a fascinating, you know, I, yeah, I, I, it's an interesting story. And um, I'm where has Rippling uh, raised a secret new funny round or what, what's, what's a secret new funny round? What's, what's, the, what's a what's a what's a funny? What, what's round? the latest valuation? What's Eric's the trying to break Eric's news to for his can, newsletter. Yeah. He didn't tell us this was yeah, really was say, just this, advertising for his newsletter. This is just this is just lead gen for a newcomer now. Listen, is, I, 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 if you want Katie and I to leave now, Eric, we can do I that. I would have called it newcomer. Transition. I, if, you know, if Katie wasn't coming on, I think I would have gotten away with it too. Tom would have gone along with it, but uh, you know. yeah, well. Cool. Parker, thank, thanks so much. Cool. Thanks, guys. Parker, thank you. Cool. And I hope you have a good time. Thanks for You're doing this, Parker. beautiful part of me. Oh, well, thank you. Cool. And thanks for hanging with a bunch of really annoying questions at the end. No, no problem. I'll touch you guys later. Hey, everybody. This is Tom here. Uh, quickly, before I sign off, I did want to make sure that I credited the great music that you heard in our intro and outro. That is by uh, Young Chomsky, who is uh, at Young Chomsky on Twitter. Very graciously let us use his previously composed piece about Silicon Valley as our music. Uh, so thanks so much to him, and uh, see you guys all back here next week. Google. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.